Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this episode, we present our inaugural monthly roundtable on all things UK, where we look at the major corporate, economic and political goings on, with a view to providing some signal through all the noise and news flow. With Phil Treed, Head of Investment and Credit Distribution, Ross Dalzell, Head of Product and Proposition in the Business Bank, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Relations Expert, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. And this week we have an inaugural monthly roundtable on all things to do with the UK. Um, I'm pleased to say that even as we find ourselves in the midst of some holiday season, I'm joined by a panel of some of our very best in-house experts. And it's great to have both of you back, Olivia and Ross. So for this format, we'll look to examine the major corporate, economic and political goings on with a view to providing some signal through the abundance of headlines that is currently facing investors, the business community and, of course, anyone who's interested in our thoughts. Uh, But first of all, Will and Olivia, it would be helpful if you could maybe set the scene for us. Um, I mean, the UK seems to some degree to be at the centre of attention at the moment with regards to the global outlook for the pandemic. And I think that's probably thanks to the advanced and rapid spread of the Delta strain here. So what's the latest, Will? Uh, yeah, you're right, Phil. Um, the UK is briefly sort of taking um, global centre stage again. Uh, so far, there's, a, I think, a, probably a couple of things to keep an eye on. Um, the first thing, and this is pretty well known, I'm not sort of, you know, I'm hopefully um, teaching grannies to suck eggs, but, you know, the current crop of vaccines appear to be uh, much more effective at um, reducing incidents of severe disease and hospitalisation than they are at halting transmission. Um, remember also that evidence is now pretty clear that the Delta variant is significantly more transmissible um, than some of its um, predecessors. Now this, you know, just as an aside, this extra transmissibility combined with the kind of vaccine's relative impotence on this area it, it, it is important for the pandemic globally. As, you, as you're seeing with you know, China, for instance, zero COVID strategies are no longer really practicable. Um, and this does all hint at a sort of, you know, as again, as an aside, at a, at a slightly more complicated, perhaps more protracted exit from the pandemic than only um, recently imagined. The second thing with regards to the UK, um, though, I think there has been some encouragement taken from the slump in new cases we've seen in the last few weeks. There are plenty of potential kind of other uh, potential inputs into this slump, uh, the all too brief heat wave, the passing of a likely kind of super spreader event in the form of the European Cup final, uh, and so on. Um, and interesting to note here, actually, that the, you know, the contact rate, basically an estimate of the degree of social intermingling uh, in the UK is below actually where it was in August of last year uh, during the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. So there is a degree of kind of lingering um, caution evidence amongst uh, uh, the UK population in spite of uh, Freedom Day. But anyway, like I say, we're now seeing, uh, you know, a surprising, that surprising slump in new cases across Europe too, where incidentally vaccination rates have caught up with the UK um, and in some cases overtaken it. So, so it's not all doom and gloom, but it's a complicated and, you know, obstacle ridden path ahead is the way I'd probably put it. So, yeah, I think building on uh, what Will just said, you know, it has been a great British, you know, political experiment with the proliferation of the Delta variant, as Will described, but, you know, simultaneously with an easing of the vast majority of COVID restrictions. Now, 
We shouldn't forget that a lot of European administrations did similar. They eased restrictions like opening nightclubs, only to reverse those decisions pretty rapidly once cases began to spiral. So our approach has been quite unique. So how the government feeling about, you know, Delta or COVID more generally? Well, actually, you know, pretty good. Besides the uh, break in the link between vaccine and, you know, serious illness and death that uh, Will mentioned, you know, we should also remember that case numbers are actually pretty well below what government had thought they would be at this point. I think you'll remember the uh, press briefings when they were talking about cases rising to about 100,000 a day. And we've actually never even got close to that point. So I think, you know, undoubtedly the government are very relieved about all of this. But of course, there are serious gambles involved with this roll of the dice, you know, not least the emergence of a potential another variant if we do let COVID just rip through the population. Or alternatively, we might reach a point where, you know, residual deaths are just too high to stomach politically. But, you know, I think what does this mean for the prospects of another lockdown? That's probably what most people are interested in hearing about. And, you know, I try not to place bets in these discussions. It never serves me well. But I think it seems pretty, you know, almost impossible that the government might head down that route at this point. You know, even if cases were to begin to pick up rapidly again, you know, quite simply, the political support isn't there. Regardless of public sentiment, you know, government have alienated a lot of their core conservative base during the various lockdowns. And we can bet there would be a pretty sizable rebellion if they tried to sort of return to a lockdown or even reintroduce any of the COVID restrictions that we've had in place before. So I think as I'll leave you with um, a quote that I think one backbench MP, conservative MP put it recently, he said, it's about time the conservatives got back to being conservative. So less nanny state and a return to those sort of libertarian ideals that they champion. So I'd never say never to another lockdown. And obviously, the emergence of a new and vaccine resistant variant could prove an exception. But I think it's pretty unlikely. And so it sounds really like government, are, you know, they're trying to encourage life back to some sorts of some sort of normality, despite the Delta variant. So Olivia, do you and the team have any view on the potential for success of this approach without, as you say, making you place bets? Yeah, so no, I think you're right to pick up on the government's emphasis of sort of life returning to normal. I think it was the Chancellor Rishi Sunak who sort of famously said, we must learn to live with COVID. And, you know, our private understanding is that the government are pretty desperate to get back to normal business. But, you know, sadly, things are never that simple. And, you know, the government's in-tray remains pretty busy with various COVID-related challenges. You know, at the moment, we're seeing a big issue around return to work. You know, there's growing government consensus. They want to see, you know, return to offices in a relatively big way. And this is pretty critical for a number of local economies, not least London. But, you know, that's rubbing up against employers who are adopting a slightly different approach or perhaps more resistant given the residual risks of the Delta variant and perhaps incomplete vaccination status of their staff. And then travel restrictions, that's another thorn in the side of the idea that life can simply return to normal. And obviously we had that sort of cabinet spat only a few weeks ago between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister about what were seen as fairly draconian restrictions on enabling people to come in and out of the UK freely. So to conclude, I'd say, you know, it's a tough road ahead for the government, not least with the idea of vaccine passports that might be coming up in the autumn. And we shouldn't, you know, underestimate the unease in amongst Conservative MPs and in fact, more widely, the Lib Dems too, about the idea of passports infringing on civil liberties. So I think the government have a lot of work to do to return life to normal and and get away with it um, per se. But yeah, an interesting uh, space to watch, I think, as the Delta variant hopefully subsides and government can crack on with um, other business.
Absolutely. Lots to watch out for in the political sphere in the coming weeks and months. But, Will, what are we seeing when it comes to the economy? Is the spread of the Delta strain showing up in some of the data that you and the investment teams you know, are analysing day to day? Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of strain is um, most apparent so far in how the split between online and offline consumption has evolved in the last few months. So, as you know, you know, this last crisis has been remarkable in many ways um, and some other words besides. But, you know, however, the the more from the move from sort of offline to online consumption was one of the really striking aspects. Um, and since, you know, so since the April reopenings in the UK, though, you've had some of that move retraced. So consumers have been going back out to the high street and shopping centres again. However, from late June till mid-July, mid this return to the high street started to reverse again. And that's perhaps indicative of some of the headlines on Delta and, uh, you know, and the on the ground uh, reality, you know, growing in consumer consciousness again. It, it does chime a little bit with that, um, you know, that contact data I just referred to as well. So, you know, there's a sort of overarching, maybe a dampening effect, but it does feel like, you know, economies around the world are sort of, you know, the argument is that the economies are sort of adapting a little bit to be able to live with this a little bit. I think, Will, just coming in there from a, a sort of business economy side, small business economy, perhaps in particular side, I think I'll just build on that point, really. We're seeing um, almost like I imagine the economy at the moment as being like a, a racetrack um, and different cars are at different points in the race. And those different cars, are different industries or different businesses. And some, as you described, some businesses actually benefited significantly from COVID. You know, some um, online retailers, for example, both small and large, will have seen their turnover really pick up significantly. And so they're kind of going much quicker than they were before the crisis. And what they're trying to do is lock in those benefits and, uh, and kind of maintain that um, um, higher speed. There are other businesses who frankly weren't that affected by it. Whole sectors, if you look at agriculture for example beyond kind of labor supply and maybe some supply chain issues actually those sectors were really largely unaffected by covid directly um, similarly there are some businesses who are still accelerating off the start line as you said you know those some of those um uh, restrictions were only lifted really a few weeks ago, um, sort of starting in April. So some businesses are still trying to get back up to full speed and are trying to kind of rebuild the business that they had before. And yet other businesses, relatively small areas now, but for example, international travel, or as Olivia mentioned before, businesses in certain locations where you know, there might be large offices, for example, around and about, those businesses are still kind of sat on the start line, revving their engine, hoping they don't overheat before they ever get a chance to get going again. So you've got this kind of real patch work across the economy at the moment and that that makes it quite challenging for individual business owners to work out what to do but also obviously um, from your perspective I guess you must be thinking about um, what that means in terms of investment strategy and uh, which sectors are damaged for the short term and which are really recovering. Quite and just following on from that Ross I mean a couple of questions for you firstly you know investors um, you know could certainly be forgiven for concluding that the pandemic seems to have rewarded some of the already established, some of the more successful business stories that were already out there, especially, for instance, in technology. So firstly, does that tally with what you're seeing amongst some of our business customers? And then secondly, just moving on from that, you know, I know you've also previously brought to our attention here on this podcast, some of the remarkable stories of adaptability within our client base. So what characteristics define the winners um, particularly if we choose to ignore some of the obvious advantages and disadvantages of, of operating you know, in, in some particularly favourable industries. 
Mm, I think to your first question, obviously we can all see the headlines. We can all see what's happened to the share prices and the profitability of some of, for example, the big sort of global tech giants. So undoubtedly, um, if you already had a established footprint in a sector that's grown, that that, that that could give you huge benefit. And that works all the way through the value chain from, you know, your your big global kind of Googles and Apples right down to um, smaller businesses as well. So that's certainly true. What we have definitely seen, though, is, is, is your sort of second point, really. You have this huge variation in outcome even in a, an individual sector so if I take something like the restaurant sector for example clearly an area that's been kind of very heavily hit by COVID you know, kind of very um, badly harmed by it but there are some kind of frankly brilliant management teams who've managed to find ways to navigate through the environment and actually come out of it at least as successful if not more so than before so for example those who really successfully embraced home delivery maybe home cooking kits set up their own YouTube channel to teach people how to cook those kits built their brand off the back of it and have actually got a a more profitable, more successful business afterwards. And so there are management teams and we can see this, um, as I say, sector by sector, who've really just bucked the trend just down to the skill and, in and ingenuity of the team. If I just try and boil it down to um, a couple of behaviours, and clearly, you know, there's no magic formula here, but there's a couple of behaviours that seem to stand out. So, so one is those business owners that were pretty decisive. That's definitely been a factor. Businesses have need to move quickly and decisively at all stages of the crisis, whether it was bringing their cost base down dramatically if they're in one of those hit sectors last spring through to taking advantage of digital channels as they become it became available or reopening really effectively. So that sort of decisiveness has definitely been a factor. And then that needs to be coupled with um, really a kind of mode of experimentation. And so those businesses who have tried things, seen if it's worked, found creative ways to try things at low cost see if it works if it does double down on it and do more of it if it doesn't back off and try something else that combination of experimentation and decisiveness seems to be the kind of management behavior that's perhaps been rewarded regardless of sector and i almost see that as kind of um just a sign of a really healthy vibrant competitive economy you know businesses trying new things and innovating and through that competition um kind of really creating that economic growth which obviously we've all uh, always want but perhaps particularly as needed in the last year or so i can obviously back that up a hundred percent i think that's such a good point and so interesting about the sort of successful uh skills in this crisis but actually just looking you know just uh, you know this already but backing it up statistically so the imf has done a lot of work on this in recent times um and they found decent evidence confirming your point that the pandemic has actually accelerated pre-existing trends in kind of industry concentration of the last few decades and um, basically many already successful companies like you say have had their sort of you know competitive citadels further reinforced by the chaos of the last couple of years now you know some of this and i think the point that you make well there is that some of this has to be you know fitting reward for those businesses past success and innovation efficiency or improved service however again you know there are alarming signs that these now entrenched corporate beasts and i'm talking about some of the big ones globally face considerably less competition than they themselves helped um, generate in, in, in themselves when they entered the markets and you know to your point ross i think you know why this might be a problem um you know, we have a very familiar, hopefully very familiar trope that of, you know, future productivity and economic dynamism. dynamism. Uh, and essentially, you know, one of the sort of secrets, um, you know, I, well, 
well-discussed secrets to sustainable long-term growth at the country level is the ability to preserve dynamism and the ability to adapt to and make the most of incoming um, technological change. And many past empires um, have founded on you know, the corrosive power of accumulated entrenched interests. Basically, one group gets, um, uh, you know, gets to the top, um, gets rich and powerful, too powerful on the back of a wave of technological, one wave of technological change, and is able to block the next wave uh, to preserve the happy state status quo, for them at least. Uh, and innovation in that world becomes a challenge to the happy status quo rather than, uh, you know, a path to, 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 to better times. And, you know, how to make sure that the political and economic winners of the moment are moved on when the time is right to be replaced by the na- next batch of innovators has been one of the persistent challenges for, you know, state design in history. Um, those who've managed the trick, uh, the UK in the past, actually, you know, in the 19th century in particular, tended to be the countries that have uh, managed the trick of sustained economic growth for the longest. See, I managed to get in the 18th century in there somewhere, but hopefully it's still <laughs> relevant. <laughs> a very useful segue there, though, Will, to my next question. And uh, a heads up, Olivia, I'll come to you first on this one. So we've seen you know, significant changes in how European authorities are certainly viewing and choosing to regulate. So particularly in the, the areas of data, the technology sector, and actually many of the other major battlegrounds that we, we've seen in recent years when it comes to some of the global competitive practices. So how do we see this evolving in the years ahead within the UK? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And we've actually seen a fair amount of activity on, on this recently. And I think you know, as as you reference, sort of major nations have been preoccupied with the challenges of regulation, not least taxation arising from the issue of a globalised economy. And I think, you know, tech companies really sit at the centre of that challenge. And I think, you know, the government in the UK, at least, was very pleased with the breakthrough um, at the G7 in June, where the finance representatives agreed to commit to a new global minimum tax rate of at least 15% for sort of multinational corporations. Now, for the UK government, that that was seen as a pretty major policy feat, following very strong public resistance in this country, you know, and across the globe to the idea that large multinationals like Amazon, Google, Facebook or other tech companies have been paying little tax in countries where they make huge profits. And actually, this particular agreement got the UK government out of a pretty tight spot because previously they'd scrabbled around thinking how to regulate and tax fairly these types of companies. And I think we were looking at a proposed sort of digital services tax in the UK to capture these types of businesses. But, you know, that wasn't without its share of controversy. So I think that's just one flavour of the sort of um, impetus to look towards multinational agreements and across Europe to try uh, tackle these very globalised issues. So I think we'll see more of that and less of an individual country approach to those types of issues. Yeah, I think just to give, um, as I say, the sort of UK and perhaps the small business sector view on that, I think everything Olivia's just said is correct. Obviously, uh, there are lots of areas where um, taxation policy regulation has struggled to keep pace with the digitization of the economy. You know, the, the poster child in the UK, at least, is often we think about rates and business rates and how the differentials charges are for a bricks and mortar business versus a digital business, which has really been a, a brewing storm for probably a decade or more. What sort of the COVID and the pandemic has done is it's put many of those trends sort of um, it's accelerated them and probably lifted them forward by three, four, five years. As we'll describe before, it'll be interesting to see what level of reversion we see, but I don't think we'll ever see a, a full regression to where we were. 
So therefore, those kind of problems that were already there in the economy, whether it was regulation of given products or whether it was taxation, this has just amplified them. It's, it's made those issues that were already bubbling away that much hotter. And I think it'll be interesting to watch over the coming years. Now, they won't be interesting to solve, easy to solve, I should say, for the, again, a reason Will touched on earlier, you will, you'll have entrenched interest, you'll have um, lots of businesses who are benefiting from that status quo who, who want to keep it the way it is. And so there's going to be a lot of conversation. But I personal view i think certainly if you talk, talk to small business lobby groups if you talk to small business owners there's some things they want just to to level things up to make sure that they're competing on a level playing field and they can that they can compete squarely across the board whether it's with large corporates or with um, other businesses in their sector i think it's going to be a huge amount of pressure for that a big conversation on that in the coming weeks and months hmm. and in amongst that it's got to be you know the problem that you've got for policymakers in terms of i mean it's an almost impossible challenge is you know how do you decide which businesses should survive you know because as you guys have discussed in this you know in, in some detail you know the pandemic has hit some good businesses that not are their own fault some businesses have adapted really well and done sort of done well but others not through their fault and have have done less well so how do you decide what are the good businesses to keep you know, keep and what, what are the ones to let go? And I think this is particularly important in the UK, as we've all discussed on this podcast before, where there is low, where has long been thought to be a longer tail of struggling businesses of all sizes for many reasons um, than many of the UK's developed world peer group. And you know, solving this problem is the, one of the keys to solving the kind of productivity conundrum of the last decade, I think. I think um, the, one of the things that's been on my mind recently sort of connects to this point, certainly to Will's point of which businesses you kind of save and which you don't. So if I go back to 2008 and that financial crisis, um, we obviously saw huge innovation in monetary policy then, particularly quantitative easing being used kind of at scale for the first time, at least in the West. And the, my view on that and others are much more important people than me on this call but the initial decision to do something like quantitative easing was much more was taken with much more reticence and uh, and was much we were much more uncertain about it than once we'd done it once you know, once that genie was out of the bottle we're much more willing to use qe with less provocation than we had been willing to previously and i think what's interesting with this crisis is you know, there's been unbelievable government intervention into the economy, whether you look at uh, small business and large corporate credit in things like the bounce back loans and the COVID business interruption loans, whether you look at the labor market with the furlough scheme, or whether you look at um, even things like real estate markets with things like um, eviction uh, moratoriums, you know, fundamental interventions in whole hunks of the economy, which we've just never seen in any of our lifetimes before. And the question in my head is, um, now we've done it once, we'll be more willing to do it again. Um, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. But I think as a banker, I'm thinking about how does that shift the risk in the economy? How's that going to shift how different sectors play out and what business owners are thinking and feeling? And I know, obviously, well, your team, it'll be a factor in how you're thinking about kind of how things play out as well. But I think it's 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 a fundamental shift that, that we get, no one can predict at this point, but we're going to want to watch in the coming, I guess, weeks and months and years, probably. I totally agree. It's, it's going to be difficult to unlearn the fact that we have, in this crisis, worked out that we can actually prevent most citizens from experiencing recessions, the worst bits of recessions. In, in the US, you know, average income went up during the recession. Um, you know, so I, I agree. I agree. And I think, you know, we, we will find out in time what this all means. But it, it, it is the crisis toolkit is very different now to what it was, um, you know, decades ago. I, I think a lot better personally, but other people, you know, there will be unintended consequences. 
food for thought there uh, from both of you and I'm sure there's lots more to discuss in future podcasts but Will just for completeness um, what are your thoughts for investors regarding an approach to UK assets from an investment standpoint are there any closing remarks you'd like to highlight to our listeners? Nothing too shocking. Uh, you know, generally we we think that the you know UK assets should form you know quite a small part of a diversified um, you know mix of assets. We recommend that global exposure. And the the way I would put it is, if you're restricting yourself to UK UK investments only, it's a little like restricting yourself strictly to British original cuisine only. You know, Lancashire hot pot is a treat, of course. But what about a delicious curry or the wonders of what happens uh, to chicken when you stick it in a deep fat fryer? Um, you're missing out. So I think the point from us is always, you know, look beyond uh, these shores. Um, at the moment, the UK, our UK assets have been enjoying a, a little bit more time in the sun this year, as you know. Um, but they are sort of offering UK only assets offer uh, just a slice of what you can access globally. And I think that's the, that's the point to always take away. Interesting insights into your diet there, Will, but uh, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm just longing for it, mate. I haven't been allowed a deep fried chicken since I've been you know, living with my wife and she has side tape for what I eat. So, yeah, it's a problem. All right. Looking forward to getting back into the office then. But um, thank <laughs> you, so. Will. Thank you, Ross and Olivia, for joining us once again. Looking forward to having you back in the future. And of course, thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. We hope you enjoyed this new format. And as always, feedback is welcome. Uh, hopefully the next few days bring us all some brighter summer weather and we'll be back next week with a focus on healthcare innovation actually um, and a special guest from BlackRock as well. We're going to be continuing the ongoing investing for innovation debate. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.